All right. Welcome and thank you for being here. Going to get underway here as we conclude, not conclude, sure we can say conclude, conclude our study of chapter 2, verse 6, and continue into our study of chapter 2, verse 7. How's that? Um, of 1 John and this. Uh, really magnificent letter and one that teaches us so much about who we are as Christians, who Christ is, and how we are to live in light of who he is. As we've seen, John has established a theological trajectory in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and he's established an ethical trajectory in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, and then he begins the bulk of his his exposition, the bulk of his teaching in chapter 2, verse 1, where he gives this third command, this third purpose for writing. He's already said, he's already given the the first purpose in verses 3 in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, the purpose of fellowship and the purpose of joy. And he gives this third purpose in chapter 2, verse 1. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, John is writing this letter to cultivate in this church an appetite for and habit of Christian holiness. And what John is trying to do is build into this church a a hunger for what, what I've sort of dubbed light walking. Right where we are walking as Christians, walking in the light, walking in the purity and in the truth of God in Christ. And so John's command then is, or his purpose for writing is so that you would not sin. In other words, he is writing so that they would walk in the light. And so in chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, John lays the foundation for this what we might call the practice of walking in the light, the commitment of the Christian to not sin. And this is going to be a theme for John throughout the rest of the book. And as we continue to study 1 John, you'll start to see that he references back, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, to these first six verses of chapter 2. Beloved, I have written to you so that you may not sin. And a lot of what John says throughout the rest of the book is just explaining what does it mean as a Christian to not sin? What does it mean to walk in holiness? What does it mean to walk in the light? And we're going to see John dig into those details even tonight as we look at chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. But what John does in these first six verses is help us kind of establish some of the theological foundation for walking in the light. One, he teaches us in chapter 2, verse 1, like we saw last week, so importantly, that, that we can walk in the light because Christ is our mediator. We see that in chapter 2, verse 1. What does the, the text say? Somebody, somebody just shouted out. And if anyone sins, what? He is yeah, we have an advocate. An advocate, a mediator, a go-between. Someone who goes before the throne of a just and holy God and says... This person is taken care of. I took care of this person. Christ 
We see here in verse 2, made propitiation for sins once and for all on the cross and now even lives right at this very moment to plead and intercede and go between us and God, making intercession before his Father. We can therefore, right, this is the connection, right? That's the theological truth, the theological reality. Christ is our mediator. And what that means for us then is that because Christ is our mediator, because he is our advocate, we can walk in the light in confidence, knowing that not if we sin as Christians, but when we sin as Christians, we know that that is the reality. That that sin was paid for and wiped clean by the work of Christ on the cross. And even now he pleads the merit of his sacrifice on our behalf when we commit sin as a Christian. So when we, not if, but when, inevitably, the Christian stumbles. We talked about last week, right? Not when the Christian makes a mistake. When the Christian sins. Jesus, before his father, right, as the song says that we sometimes sing, right, pleads the merit of his blood, pleads the merit of his wounds. He, he says to the father, you can imagine the sort of heavenly courtroom scene, when Daniel sins, when Daniel commits a sin, what, what does God say? What does the law say? What does the covenant of works say? That you are condemned, that I, I, I am dead. I need to go to hell. Then what does Jesus say? Jesus says, look at my wounds. Painful, right? And obviously we understand that there's not this sort of argument going on between the Father and the Son. But that's the picture, right? That, that my sin has condemned me, even as a Christian, right? That, that my, my sin is, makes me worthy of nothing more than death. And, but Jesus, because of what he did on the cross, his Payment in full, satisfaction eternally, right? There is, it is not possible for there to be more red written in my ledger after Jesus, interestingly enough, redded, right? Not whited, redded with his own blood it all out. So that's the first sort of theological foundation for walking in the light. We can walk in the light. We can walk in holiness because we have an advocate. We have propitiation. That sin, objectively, once for all, has been taken care of. And so then the second reality there, then, in verses 1 through 6, is that we have come to know God. The language of verse 3 indicates that our knowledge of God, our intimate and close personal relationship with Him, is an objective and static and unchanging reality. What what does the text say? By this we know, right? We talked about the difference in verb tenses there last week. We got kind of technical with Pastor Scott where we talk about this this concept that the knowledge of God, knowing him, that's an objective reality. And our coming to know, or by this we know that we have come to know him, right? That first instance of the word know there is actually a present. That's something that's continually happening. We are continually coming to know in a deeper and truer sense that objective knowledge that we have of God, that objective intimacy that we have with him. What changes and moves and progresses is our knowledge and awareness of the nature of that relationship. So we can walk in the light because we have come to know God. And then finally, we can understand that we can walk in the light because God's love is complete or perfected or established or true in us. There is nothing lacking in the objective status of our relationship with God. 
His love for us has been fully and finally demonstrated to us at the cross of Christ. John then lays out the threefold implication of these realities. When we sin, the evidence of our faith is found in our lifestyle or pattern of commandment keeping, word keeping, and Christ following. Therefore, though we do not yet keep the law perfectly, though that day will come, we can have confidence and assurance based on the evidence of our own lives that we know God truly and savingly. Now, what John is going to do in verses 7 through 11 is drill down into the content of his command. What does he say? The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Verse 3, by this we come to know him, if we keep his commandments. And so what John is going to do is he's going to drill down deeper into what are these commandments? What are the commandments that we are to keep? If we know God, we are to keep, therefore, his commandments. What are those commandments? What is it that we are to do? What is a commandment to keep? It's actually a very simple commandment on paper, but one that encompasses the entirety of the moral law. So with those matters in mind, let's begin. We're going to start tonight by dealing with the exegetical part of the text. In other words, we're going to figure out what the text says, and we're going to deal with the doctrinal parts. What does this text teach? And then we're going to deal with the ethical part, which is What am I supposed to do in light of this text? So with that in mind, let's look at verses 7 through 11. Does someone want to read 1 John 2, 7 through 11? Anybody who wants to read can do so. So reads the word of God. So much packed into five verses here. So we're going to do our best to plumb the depths and dig out the treasures that are that are here. John begins in verse 7 with a classic Johannine, right? A classic John-style transition. What does he say? He says, beloved. That's a pretty simple phrase. Beloved, the, directed to those whom he loves. And, and it's, it's interesting, right? You read John, and he's very stream of consciousness. Paul is very structured, very organized. Even Peter has a lot of structure and a lot of organization to the way that he writes. John's completely different. This guy is just like whatever he's thinking, it just sort of comes out, right? And it's often difficult then to discern where one unit of thought ends and another begins. This word beloved, however, is one of the few and far between indicators in John's writings of where one thought ends, one section ends, and another begins. And John 
uses it routinely, actually six or seven times in 1 John, to indicate a transition into another section. And then, more importantly than that, it reminds his readers and it reminds us of the tender love and affection with which John writes. He's writing to people who he knows, whom he loves, and whom he desires to grow in their relationship with God. So, what is it that John is writing here to the beloved? What does he say? Beloved, I am, my translation says, beloved, I am not writing, or Jenny's translation, I think Jenny's reading from the ESV, Beloved, I am writing you know. What is it that John is saying that he's not writing in verse 7? A new commandment. A new commandment. What is he writing in verse 7? An old, old commandment. It's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. It's a commandment that has been, that this church has, according to John, had from the beginning. So negatively, it's not a new commandment. Positively, it is an old commandment. It's one that they've had from the beginning. It's the word that they have heard. And John here seems to be making a reference back to verse chapter 1, verse 5. Or no, 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 that's, that's, comes, that comes later. I'm, I wrote only verse 5. I'm trying to figure out which verse 5 I'm talking about. Chapter 2, verse 5. When he discusses the keeping of the word as a marker of the perfection of God's love in their hearts. So there seems to be for John a connection between the commandment of 2.7 and the word of 2.5. Why? Because actually if you go back to verse 4, chapter 2 verse 4, what does he say? The, the phrase there, keep his commandments. Then go down to verse 5, keep his word. And so we can see there this parallel structure that Hebrew and Jewish writers love to use so much when they want to try and teach us something about one idea, they parallel it with another idea. So, we need to answer two questions here out of verse 7. What is the commandment, first of all? And second of all, why does John describe the commandment as old? So, what do we think? What is the commandment that John is talking about here? What? Jesus. This will make alive created from the beginning. Okay. Okay. Say it louder. To love one another. How do you know? How do you know that John's talking about the commandment to love one another? Because you can't um, hate if you love. And that's what he's talking about. If you, if you are in the darkness, if you hate, so you have to be in the light. But light is love. Jesus is love. You're getting close. Zach. Does it go all the way back to chapter 1 where he's calling you to walk in the light? And then in verse 10, he defines that as loving your brother? Yeah. That's, that's the, the big picture answer, that walking in the light and walking in love are actually kind of the same thing. And if you want to explain walking in the light, you explain it as it's walking in love. And really the place that you get the, you get the, the explanation from is verse 10. The one who loves his brother. 
right? That's the command. The commandment is, is to walk in the light and thereby love your brother. And there in verse 10, right, he, he equates the two inextricably, right? The one who loves his brother abides in the light. You're going to walk in the light. You love your brother. If you love your brother, you walk in the light. You can't say that you walk in the light and hate your brother because the two are like oil and water. They're mutually exclusive. You can be in the dark and the light at the same time. Exactly. So John has used this word commandments. We're going to go real deep here. John has used this word commandments twice already before he gets to chapter 2, verse 7. The first time that he uses it in chapter 2, verse 3. And what does he say? By this, we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Who's his in in verse 3? Yeah, you go back to verse 2, and he's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the one who's a propitiation for our sins, the advocate. And how do we know that we know the advocate? How do we know that we know the propitiation if we keep his commandments? So, makes sense then, right? The commandment here is Jesus' commandment. Now, what's interesting here is that John doesn't really explain what this commandment is. He assumes that his readers already know it. And if John's assuming that you already know something, what is is 1 John the first book of John that we encounter in the New Testament? The gospel. What's the first book we encounter of John's in the New Testament? The gospel. the gospel. John is assuming that we have a fundamental familiarity with his gospel. So we got to go to his gospel to figure out what this command is that he assumes that we know. Who, who knows what John might mean, then, by the commandment of Christ? Love your brother and love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think he starts out in, when he's in the upper room discourse in chapter 14. He's talking about, uh, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So, First of all, we have to love him, and if you love me, you will keep my commandments in chapter 14. So that's where it starts out. By, by keeping the commandments, we prove, first of all, we love mm-hmm. him, and then we, we do it to, to the other brothers. You are so close to where I'm going with this one. So close. I'm always, I always feel the sense of... Ron always knows. He's, Ron's always in my mind. He always knows exactly where I'm going. The Holy Spirit. Somebody turn to John 13, 34 wow. and read it out loud for me. You didn't go back far enough. You didn't go back quite far enough. Okay. Oh, yeah, there is. Somebody read it, John 13, 34. Okay, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. Somebody else skip ahead two chapters and read John 15, 12. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. When the tricky Jewish leaders thought they were going to trap Jesus and they said, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? Two of them. What was the first one? Love God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Number two, Love love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that particular exchange actually doesn't occur in John's gospel. It's not recorded there. We hear it in the other three. We don't hear it in John's gospel. What we do hear are these two commands. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then John 15, 12, this is my commandment, 
that you love one another just as I have loved you. The only place in John's gospel where Christ speaks of a singular commandment and says, this is my commandment. That's critical here for us to understand from John 13 and John 15 is that Jesus says, this is my commandment. So when John comes then in 1 John 2, 3 and 1 John 2, 4 and 5 and says, you need to keep his commandments, the logical place for us to go has to be, what are those commandments or that single commandment that Jesus himself said, this is my commandment. And it's this, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And he, he repeats that, the, he repeats that twice. And we're going to come back to that when we start trying to think about how do we define Christian love. Christian love is, as you would expect, it is Christian love, love that is like Christ. And so what does he say both times? Love each other as I have loved you. We are to love others then. The, the commandment to love is specifically Christ-like love. It's not just a love that we get to define ourselves. It's not just a love that, that I feel like, you know, I, I feel good about this, so I'm going to do this. That's love, right? No, it's, it's objectively defined. And we're going to talk about four objective definitions of Christ's love here in a minute. So that's the content of the commandment, right? We get that, right? The commandment is to love one another. And we could tattoo that on the inside of our eyelids and we could be done for the night and we would get, we would be full of things that we could go, we know, okay, let's go, let's go do this. We can love one another. But John doesn't stop there, so neither are we. We know what the commandment is, but why does John say Especially when Jesus himself, what did Jesus say in 1334? A what kind of commandment? A new commandment I give to you. So how then does John say, I'm actually not writing you a new commandment at all. It's an old commandment. How can John say that? In other words, let's answer the question, what makes this commandment old? What do you guys think? Because it's in the Old Testament. It's in the Old Testament. Oh, yeah. It's all over the Old Testament. We're going to talk about that in a minute. That's one reason why John calls it an old commandment. I believe there are two. Does anybody want to take a stab at the other reason that this is an old commandment? I believe that because Jesus was created when uh, everything was created and he is God. I'm but stretching he, my back. He was created from let me Let me pause you right there and just issue a brief reminder that Jesus was not created. Just a brief reminder. No, but he was alive. But yes, you're right. You are exactly right. Minus the Jesus was created party was not he exists in eternity. No, no. We can talk about that later. But you're exactly right. That's exactly where I was going with this. And this is the first reason why this is an old commandment. Because love exists intrinsically in God. And God is eternal. This command to love one another is as old as God is. How old is God? This is like a this is like a preschool Sunday school question. How old is God, Anthony? How old is God? He exists eternally outside of time. We can't comprehend that. The best we can get is that God is older than we can imagine. That's the best we can get in our human comprehension. Somebody turn to First John four eight and tell me what it says there. First John four eight.
one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. For God is love. Two times in John, in 1 John, do we hear John describing God as something, essentially. What, what was the first one? Chapter 1, verse 5. God is light. The second one, 4, 8. God is love. In other words, love is part of God's essential being. It is intrinsic to who he is. If there is any part of God that is not love, God ceases to be God. Now, that might be kind of hard to get your mind wrapped around, and it's on purpose, right? God is love. And so the reason that John can say that this is an old commandment, indeed it is an ancient commandment, is because the love of God in which our own Christian love is grounded is, as Jude said, it's eternal. It's from eternity past. So much so that we affirm, first of all, that love is eternal, 1 Corinthians 12. What pass away? Faith and hope. What remains? Love. And what Paul is saying there is that, that love is eternal, right? Faith and hope have time-constricted bounds. When we see Christ and we see God face-to-face in the eternal state, we don't have faith anymore. We don't have hope because what? It's been made sight. But what do we still have? As Jonathan Edwards says, what is heaven? It is a world of love. Ron. Yeah, in the nature of God himself as a triune being, that's where the love was. You mm-hmm. know, uh, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. Uh, uh, the Father comes down and says, this is my beloved Son. Mm-hmm. So we see that love is in the Trinity, and I think this is why God always had love. He didn't create us because he was lonely, of course, mm-hmm. because he needed to love something, mm-hmm. but because the love was already there. And I think this really distinguishes all the other imaginary gods that people have created, even the one God of Islam, mm-hmm. that God is a singular God, and where would he, where would he get love? You know, mm-hmm. because in the Trinity, I believe that's where the love was ever existing. Mm-hmm. God, that was, you know, God is love because I think the, the Trinity was was always in love. You see, and so, you know. God, God just decided he'd create us too because he had so much love that, mm-hmm. that he wanted to, to create beings that he could love. I was going to drop this really profound quote from a commentator, a biblical scholar named Robert Yarbrough on you, and Ron just summarized the whole thing perfectly. <laughs> the, the love of God exists eternally, and it exists one to another between the members of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, and that love from eternity past has been perfect one to another. They love each other perfectly in the, in the Godhead, right? That's what we call it in theology, the, the cohesive triune unit. They love each other, and that love has existed eternally, right? Because God himself is eternal and exists eternally. And you also touched on another important thing when we talk about what distinguishes true Trinitarian biblical Christianity from something like Islam. It's that Allah, the singular monotheistic God of Islam, cannot have love intrinsic in his character because there is no other 
eternal person to cultivate that love with. So how can the, so 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 how can Allah prompt or or produce love in His followers? He can't because it, it, there's there's no way for a God who does not exist intrinsically in His essence in relationship to understand what the outpouring of love in a relationship looks like. So that's the the esoteric heady reason. Theological reason that this command is old, that it's ancient, but there's actually a very concrete reason, a very concrete ancientness, oldness to this commandment. Before we get into it, Judith, you had your hand up. Yeah, so if I, I think I understand what you're saying. So, how was the love coming in before Jesus came to earth? We'll get to it right now. Somebody turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Read verse 18 for me. And then somebody else can grab verse 34 of Leviticus 19 while you're there. Is it 19.18 and 19.34 of Leviticus. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Let me put you on a pause right there. Here, Moses applies this command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love others, an outward-facing love to the people of Israel. They're supposed to love their fellow covenant family members as themselves. So when Jesus says this is the greatest commandment, He's quoting verbatim from Moses in Leviticus 19. Let's continue in verse 34, Leviticus 19, 34. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. That, does that take it a step further? Uh, because loving our neighbor is someone close to us, and here it seems to be expanding to love your stranger, the stranger who is even outside. Exactly. The, the, the love command going all the way back to Moses is not only love for the covenant people that are right here in the community, in the people of God, but it's also love that extends beyond, in their context, beyond the bounds of the camp, in our context, beyond the walls of the church. Not only is the command to love your brother, and that's actually John's primary focus right now, right now in, in chapter 2. He gets to those who are outside later in 1 John. But for right now, right, this is for John a focused love on the brethren, right? Brothers. That's what he says, right? Love your brother. He hates his brother and doesn't walk him away. But the implication for Jesus and for John when they either quote or allude to Leviticus 19, is that we are to not only love those who are in these four walls, but love those who are beyond as well. That's interesting. Yeah, I never saw that before. And so we'll return to Leviticus 19 a little bit later on tonight. But 
Suffice it to say for right now that John therefore speaks in theological and in biblical unity with the rest of Scripture when he says that the command to love one another is an old command. It's an ancient command. It's a command that is as ancient as God in its existence, and it is a command that is as ancient as Moses as it is verbalized. And if we want to go really down deep, we could talk about the existence of love in the creation between Adam and Eve, and we could talk about other you know, sort of the, the biblical theology of love if we want to. That's a conversation for a different time. Suffice it to say for right now, two reasons that this command is old is that it exi- the, 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 the love imperative exists in God in eternity past and then in ancient times, Moses himself commanded it. And then what does he modify it as? Verse seven, I'm not writing a new commandment to you But an old commandment, how does he describe it? An old commandment which, what does the text say? An old commandment which you have had from the beginning. Now, there's a a little bit of divergence on interpretation here. Some people say that to have the commandment from the beginning means that you had it from the beginning of your walk with Christ. The beginning of your time as a believer. That from the very moment that you receive Christ savingly, that you have had this commandment to love. And that's true. We would acknowledge that. But I think that John has something a little bit broader in mind, especially when we think about the ancientness and the oldness of this commandment. I don't think that John is just limiting himself to the time frame of our own testimony as Christians. I think what he means here is that all of God's people for all of time have had this commandment, whether implicitly as Adam and Eve did or explicitly as the people of God received it from the mouth of Moses, no matter what epoch or what era you find yourself in as a Christ follower, as a child of God, you are privy to this great commandment. It applies to you. And that's what John means when he says, you've had this from the beginning. Every Christian has had this commandment from the beginning. John then further clarifies in verse 7, It's not a new commandment. It's an old commandment. It's a commandment which you have had from the beginning, and it is the word which you have heard. And so John is clarifying then. He's saying that the commandment is the word which you have heard, and Jesus himself said it, right? All the scriptures can be summed up in these two commands. Love God, love others. Indeed, then, Every pen stroke of ethical teaching throughout the entire Bible really can be described as just simply an exposition or an explanation of those two commands. Love God or love others. Every other do command, every other imperative of the scriptures comes out of this is either something that you're doing because you love God or this is something you're doing because you love others. They all exist to answer the question, how do I love God? How do I love my neighbor? Rightly, then, John can say that the word which has been passed down and received from generation to generation, from Moses through the prophets to Christ, to the apostles, to the inscripturated Bibles that we hold in our laps tonight, all these teachings are rightly captured in this double imperative, love God and love others. It is an ancient command. It is a command that we have had from the beginning and which we have heard from the beginning. And John then is making a not-so-subtle reference back to 1 John 1.1. What was from the beginning? Right? The, verse 7. 
The commandment which we have had from the beginning. Chapter 1, verse 1. What was from the beginning? What we have heard. We've seen with our eyes what we've beheld, touched with our hands, so on and so forth. What John is doing is connecting the eternal word here, the command to love here, and right in the middle, those two are brought together in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They're, for John, a tight, singular package, demonstrating that Jesus himself is the complete and total fulfillment of this ancient command to love. And indeed, he is the ancient word of love made flesh, accomplishing the greatest and most profound act of love in human history, which is giving up his life so that others may live. And this is what segues John into verse 8. John now, what does he do in verse 8? Literarily, what has he done? Rhetorically, what has he done in verse 8 compared to verse 7? He said the opposite. What is that called in rhetoric or in literature? What has he done? It's an accusation that has been leveled against the scriptures for all of its existence. What has he done? He's contradicted himself. He said, this is not, what does he say in verse 7? It's not a new commandment. Then he says in verse 8, actually, it is a new commandment. Interesting. How do we bring these two together? We've already danced around this. We'll just say it. Explicitly, the most basic answer to this question is that it's an old commandment because it was spoken by Moses, and it's a new commandment because it was repeated by Jesus some 1,400 years later. Let me explain that a little bit deeper. Jesus' affirmation of Moses' command to love one another demonstrates that this command has an eternal and timeless quality, thereby making it perpetually fresh and always new. The command to love one another never gets old. Listen to John Calvin. He says new... Because God, as it were, renews it by daily suggesting it so that the faithful may practice it through their whole life. For nothing more excellent can be sought for by them. The elements with which children learn give place in time to what is higher and more solid. On the contrary, John denies that the doctrine respecting brotherly love is of this kind. It is not one which grows old with time, but it is perpetually in force so that it is no less so that it has no less the highest perfection than it did at the very beginning. The command is new, therefore, in the sense that it was reiterated by Christ, and according to our abiding in him and walking in his light, it is ever present in us and through us, which leads us to John's second clause in verse 8. It is true in him and true in us. Love, therefore, is true in Christ in the sense that it was fulfilled in his person and in his work. Robert Yarbrough points out four ways that this is true. One, Jesus exemplified love in his fellowship with the Father. Read John's Gospel, and it is rife with Jesus' teaching about his own relationship, about his mutual fellowship that he has with his Father. Number two, Jesus exemplified love in the way that he cared for his friends and family, like Mary, Martha, Lazarus, 
his own mother, the city of Jerusalem, and his own disciples. Number three, Jesus taught his disciples to love others, like we saw the way that he loved them. And then finally, number four, and most importantly, Jesus demonstrated ultimate love by his willing sacrifice on the cross for the sake of his people. Jesus is love incarnate. Based on our union with Christ as explicated as we've seen so often in John's record of Jesus' prayer in John 17, we can infer that by means of our union and communion with Christ, we possess the same love for God that he had because we are in him. We have the same care for those around us as he did because we are in him. And we have the same capacity for loving sacrifice that Jesus did because we are in him. In this regard, then, John demonstrates the essential union that is in place between Christ and his people by virtue of this, that the command to love is true in Christ and is true in you. We'll get into this more in a moment. John digs deeper in this third clause by telling us that the reason this commandment is new and true is because we are living in the end times. This, the fulfillment and completion of redemptive history is at hand. And the fulfillment and completion that, of redemptive history go hand in hand with this perpetual commandment of love. We're going to get into that more in just a minute. Finally, there's so much packed into these two verses. The command to love is connected with the propagation and expansion of light. And John connects these two all the time. To walk in the light is to walk in love. To walk in love is to walk in the light. This forms the basis for John's entire ethical formula in 1 John the collision of light and love in, tr in a true, complete, and fulfilled Christian ethic that stands firm on the truth and leans into relationship with God and with others. John now moves on in verse 9 to really give feet to what he said back in verses, chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. There, John simply said, walk in the light. He didn't necessarily talk about what it meant to walk in the light. Now he expands and explains in verses 9 through 11 of chapter 2 what it looks like. So somebody tell me from the text, verses 9 through 11, what does it mean to walk in the light? How do I, as a person in 2023, how do you as people in 2023, how do we walk in the light according to John in verses 9 through 11? By loving. By loving, by loving who? Each other each other so to walk in the light is then to give visible external expression to the internal reality by loving one another if I love Judith if I love Richard or Anthony or Russ is that, is that just something that's just sort of out there Oh, we, we feel the we feel the love of the Lion King. We feel the love tonight. No. This isn't the Lion King. This is DC talk. What did they say? Love is a verb. 
It's something that you do. It's something that is visible that can be seen. And so if you want to know, going back to the test that we talked about of authentic Christianity, if you want to know whether or not someone walks in the light, look at the way that they relate to the person that's sitting right here with them on a Sunday morning. John paints a contrast then between the light walker on the one hand and the darkness dweller on the other in these verses. We talked about the professor and the confessor, right? The professor being the person who says they know Christ, who says they walk in the light but does something completely different. And then on the other hand, we have the confessor, the person who's serious, who's a legit Christian, who walks the walk. The professor says one thing and does another. The confessor is consistent. His walk matches his talk. The professor is filled with hatred, excluding, reviling, insulting, and rejecting those whom they should be in fellowship with. The confessor is filled with love, not causing his brothers to stumble. The professor walks in the darkness of sin. The confessor walks in the light of Christ. For John, then, to walk in the light is to walk in love. The mark of genuine union with God through Christ is a genuine and consistent pattern of love for the brethren. There's so much more I could say about 9, 10, and 11. <laughs> and, and it's so interesting how it's, you know, the darkness, it's like you don't even know where you're going. So it's, it's kind of giving the, the picture. Yeah. If, if you don't have love, then you are stumbling. You don't know where you're going. And it's, I can picture that when I'm in the dark, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm stumbling constantly. Yeah. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's not just a feel, but a visual. Yeah. And John, I didn't have time to get into this too much. But you can see there that John's painting it. It's a really interesting picture. What does he say? Verse 10. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is what? No cause for what in him? Stumbling. Interesting. And then what does he say? In verse 11, he's talking about walking around in the darkness and does not know where he's going. If I'm walking around in the darkness and I don't know where I'm going, what am I going to likely do? Stumble. Stumble. I'll never forget one of the funniest instances of my childhood was when I was, I don't know, 13 or 14 years old. And this was around the time where my feet were outgrowing the rest of my body. And I got up in the middle of the night and I had to walk past my parents' room to get to the kitchen. And I was dying of thirst. It's Colorado. It's dry. It's like negative humidity there. Like you, you breathe out and it like puts more you know, air, you know, more humidity out in the air than you know, prior, like, you know, prior there. And you get... You know, bloody noses all the time. So I wake up in the night and I'm thirsty. And right outside my parents' room, there's a bookshelf in the hallway. And I catch my oversized foot on that thing because it's dark and boom, make a big old fuss, make a big old noise in the middle of the night. My dad comes out. He thinks there's a robber or something. I'm like, I'm going to get shot or something or whatever because I fell over in the middle of the night. And that's what happens when you walk around in the dark. You stumble. And then what happens? Okay, so let's think about this. Let's put ourselves in a scenario. Let's say that we are at youth group and we're going to play a game. This is what I did at my youth group growing up. We're going to play a game of dark tag. And what that means is we're going to turn off all the lights and we're just going to run roughshod throughout the church building and play tag in the dark. So 
let's go back to my previous scenario. I'm running around in the dark. I stumble. I'm laying on the ground. I'm like, oh, I think I'm concussed. Actually happened at a youth group event of mine growing up. Kid fell over in the dark and got concussed. That's why we make them sign health waivers. And while that kid's laying on the ground, what does he become to other people? As he's stumbled and fallen on the ground, what does he become to the other kids? The other people Everybody else starts stumbling over that guy who had fallen on the ground. So when you walk in the darkness and you get lost and you stumble, what do you cause others to do? Stumble causes chain reactions. What is John saying here about those who walk in the light? In them, there is no cause for stumbling. Those who walk in the light do not cause others to stumble. That's a basic ethical test right there. Am I, am I causing someone else to sin? Am I causing someone else to stumble? If I'm doing that, that means that I've become a stumbling block. I've stumbled myself. So, that's the exegetical part. Let's talk about three big doctrinal truths, three big teachings that are here in place for us in this text of scripture there's blanks there on your outline so you can fill them in there are so many theological points you could make here you could write an entire book about just the theology of these couple of verses but we'll just mention three points number one love is eternal love is eternal when john tells us that the command to love one another is an old commandment he is saying that this commandment is so old that it actually predates time itself First, Ron mentioned this earlier, first we affirm that God's love exists perfectly in the eternal inter-Trinitarian relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit. Ron also mentioned this. On a side note, we deny, okay, hear me on this, we deny the teaching that God created human beings because he was lonely and needed someone to love. God's love existed in perfect fulfillment. He did not need to create us so that he could have somebody to pour his love out on. He created us purely out of an act of his free grace. Second, this is the second way that we affirm that God's love is eternal. We affirm the eternality of God's love, not in just the inter-Trinitarian context, but we affirm the eternality of God's love toward his covenant people in the context of what we like to call the pactum salutis, or the eternal covenant of redemption. We, re we read in Ephesians 1, and you can write this down. You can read this for further study later. Ephesians 1. What does it say there? That it was in his love that he predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters. When? Not at the fall of Adam and Eve, before the foundation of the world. I personally cannot get my head wrapped around that. That God has set his, everybody in this room, if we have confessed Christ truly, if we know him savingly tonight, his love was set upon you, Judah, and you, Zena, before the foundation of the world. I can't get my head wrapped around that. That's, Right as we sing on Sunday mornings. This is love I can't explain. Right? Mm -hmm. Love I can't explain that it would be set upon me by the God of the universe before the foundation of the world. Before 
as the it's been said in the vernacular, before you were a twinkle in your father's eye, God set his love on you. So not only is love eternal in this esoteric and abstract sense where it's the Father loving the Son and loving the Spirit and the Son loving the Spirit and the Father and the Spirit loving the Son and the Father all together. This is love that's been set upon us, the covenant people of God, from before the foundation of the world. That is a blessed truth. Number two. Number one, love is eternal. Number two, love unifies the covenants. How do we know this from John? He gives the commandment in this black and white, old and new formulation. It's an old commandment. It's a new commandment. What John is doing here is he's signaling a unity to the story of Scripture, a unity to the commands of Scripture. God has not changed. His ethical program has not changed. In other words, what God wants his people to do has not changed from Moses all the way to Christ. As we saw, the command to love one another and to love your neighbor as yourself is first expressed by Moses in Leviticus 19 and 1,500 years later taken up by Christ in John 13. We affirm this unity against those who claim that the God of the Old Testament is a different entity, a different God than the God of the New Testament. And there are people out there who say the God of the Old Testament is a God of hate and the God of New Testament is a God of love. False. John tells us explicitly here that the God of the Old Testament is just as much a God of love as the God of the New Testament. We affirm this against those who, I heard this on the internet this week, those who claim that Jesus came to correct God's mistakes in the Old Testament. Get a load of that. We affirm this unity in the face of that, whatever that garbage is. Jesus came to fulfill the eternal command of love expressed by Moses. We affirm this unity against those who claim that God changes and progresses over time. This is just one bit of evidence that God does not change. His command in the Old Testament is exactly the same as his command in the New. And then finally, this is a popular one. It's been popular for a while. We affirm this unity of Old Testament and New Testament against those who claim that Jesus taught a different code of ethics than the Old Testament. Jesus taught the exact same moral principles that the Old Testament taught from beginning to end. Well, I really, I really don't like the, the Ten Commandments. They oppress me, but I really like the Sermon on the Mount. They're one and the same. All they are are explanations of those two great commandments. Love God, love others. That's number two. Love unifies the covenants. Number three, this one might throw you for a loop. I'll have to do a little explaining on this. Love signals the eschaton. Ooh, what do I mean by that? Love signals the eschaton. Well, let's get into that. What do we mean? This is a deeper and more subtle doctrine taught in this text, but it's one that's worth our attention. Notice the final clause of verse eight. What does he say? The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. 
Just prior, John has affirmed that this commandment is true both in Christ and in his church in union with him. We talked about the four ways that Christ expressed his love. Right? Love with his father, love for others, teaching and commanding love and laying down his life. That same love then is expressed by his church and it signals something of incredible importance. This love possesses, as we've seen, right? To walk in love is to walk in the light. And so we can say that this Christian love possesses a kind of theological and ethical brightness, a unique glory that is derivative of God's own inherent glory. Love, therefore, is what gave Christ the darkness-defeating light described in John 1. What did, what did he say? The light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. According to John here, that light is expressed visibly, as we've said, in love. Love for God, love for his friends, and ultimately love that would sacrifice Christ's own life for the sake of others. John expands the thought here by telling us that not only is the light not overcome by the darkness, let's use an illustration, right? You can light a candle in a dark room and the area around it will be bright and the darkness, as long as the candle burns, right? The darkness is not going to be over, the, the darkness will not overcome that light. As long as the light's on, right? If we leave this light on forever in perpetuity, it's not going to, the darkness is not going to encroach on it, right? It'll stay light forever. And that's what we hear, right? For in, in, in John's gospel, right? The darkness has not overcome it. The light is standing firm. It's not giving up any ground. How does John expand that here in 1 John? The darkness is what? What's happening to the darkness in verse 8? It's passing away. So what do we hear then? That not only does light just exist in a manner in which a darkness cannot overcome it, it actually pushes the darkness back. Hence the title of our lesson tonight. Love that banishes darkness. In other words, then, every act of love that Christ accomplished while on earth, culminating in his self-sacrifice at the cross, and then now, every act of love that Jesus continues to accomplish, and he does continue to accomplish it, because every time that Sarah loves someone in this church, every time that Judith or Ron or Andre or whoever loves someone in this church and, and walks in the love that Christ exemplified, Christ is exercising his love in you, right? There's another song we sing, Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Every time that I love someone, Christ is loving that person through me. And so his love continues to do what? Cause the darkness to pass away. Banish the darkness. Not only then is the darkness passing away, but the true light is shining. And if the true light is shining and the darkness is passing away, that means that that light is continuing to glow brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter. How? Because people continue to get saved. God is not done. We're still here. So that means that God is not done saving people, which means that Christ is not done expanding his light to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So how does this all signal the eschaton? How does this expansion of light indicate to us that we are, that we are living in the fulfillment of the end times, that we are drawing near 
to the second coming of Christ. It's as easy as the nose on your face. How does this all end in Revelation 21? Verses 23 through 26. And the city has no need of what? Who knows it? No need of what? The sun or the moon? Why? For the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb. And the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be closed by day for there will be no night there. In the end, what what is happening right now? According to John verse 8, what is happening to the darkness right now? It's passing away. Once we get to the end, what is completed? The darkness passing away. Not, not Once we get there, it's not passing away anymore. It's in the past tense. It has passed away. That's what we look forward to. And what John is saying here is that by loving one another, by refusing to hate our brother and loving them instead, we are pressing forward toward that final day when darkness is gone. And then what exists? According to John in Revelation 21, heaven is a world of what? Light. And if heaven is a world of light, then it must also be a world of, Zach said it, a world of love. That's what we have to look forward to, and that's what we participate in even now. And so as Christians, when we love someone, in our actions, in our deeds, we do so in the hope that one day all of this love and all of this light will cause darkness to pass away forever. Revelation 22, 5, and there will no longer be any night and they will not have any need of the light of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. One of the distinguishing marks of the new heaven and the new earth is that there will be no darkness at all. And so what John is doing by telling us that Because the love of Christ and the love of the church is shining right now like a blazing torch, the darkness is being pushed back in anticipation of that day when finally darkness will cease to exist entirely. Christ's life and death of love occurring in history in the past and being expressed now in the present through the love of his church is pushing back the darkness and driving history forward to its culmination when darkness will be banished forever. Praise God. I'm starting to lose my voice. I didn't plan on coming here to preach tonight. I'm hearing probably 60% of this for the first time myself as well. We're six minutes over, but we're fine. I want to talk about Leviticus 19 real briefly. We talked about it before. And what I love about the way that we as Christians now think about the law is that now that we're in Christ, the law is our rule for life. And so we can go back to the Old Testament. We can draw principles out of the writings of Moses, the law of Moses, that teach us how to, I got a funny little thing on my lip, that teach us how we are to live. And really what Leviticus 19 is, it's just an exposition of the Ten Commandments. So I just want to talk 
real briefly as we close about some of the ethical implications. What do we do? What does this love actually look like? If I want to love Andre or Linda or Zach or Russ or Pastor Scott, what do I do? What do we do as a church to love one another? Leviticus 19 has a lot to teach us. So if you go through those opening verses there in Leviticus 19, you hear some of the explanation of what it means to love God, right? Don't make idols. It's the way that you love God. Offer right sacrifices. You love God that way. And we get to, I don't have the verse numbers up in front of me. I think it's verse 6 or verse 7. This is how we love one another as Christians. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. What do you do with them? You leave them for the afflicted and for the sojourner. How do you love other people? You intentionally leave a little bit of your produce behind so that someone else might have the opportunity to eat. What's the big picture principle here? Generosity. To love is to give freely of what God has given you to others. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next three weeks on Sunday mornings. How do I give my time? How do I give my talents? How do I give my treasure in service of my brothers and sisters? What else? You shall not steal nor deal falsely nor lie to one another and you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of your God. I am Yahweh. You want to love others? Don't lie. You want to love others? Tell the truth. That's what love looks like for Moses. That's what love looks like for Jesus. That's what it looks like. love looks like for John. That's what it looks like for us. Tell the truth. No lies, no false witness. What else shall you not do? You should not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. You want to love other people? Honor their property. Honor their stuff. Don't oppress other people. Isn't that wild that we have lots of factions of people in our nation today who want to talk a lot about love and then the next minute they're breaking into an Apple store or whatever and robbing people. What else? The wages of a hired man shall not remain with you overnight until morning. In other words, what people are owed, make sure they get it. I'm not a big fan of, you know, sort of goofy interpersonal loans in church. But if you, you're going to help somebody out, help them out. I'm going to hold on to that. Right, there's ethics here. Love, ethics, gospel ethics for even how you run your business. You shall not curse a deaf man nor place a stumbling block before the blind. <laughs> That's just mean. Okay? Like there's not a, there's not a lot in the Bible that says you've got to be a nice person, right? We talk about kindness over niceness. This is just kindness. Don't be cruel. <laughs> to love someone is to not be cruel. To be the, the opposite of cruel is to be kind, to be caring. Right? What's the opposite of putting a stumbling block before the blind? What's the opposite of it? Remove the stumbling block from before the blind. That's a practical thing to do. We don't necessarily encounter a ton of blind people. You know, but there are other ways that that works itself out. You should not do injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. 
but you shall judge your neighbor in righteousness. This goes back to a commitment to truth, right? We have a lot of people who say, oh, well, they're poor, so they get, they, they get to, you know, they have a different set of rules for the poor. We have also a lot of people, oh, they're rich, so the, don't, the rules don't apply to them if they're rich. And what it means to love, then, is to judge in righteousness at all times. Tell the truth, and we see that, right? A connection between truth and love. Man, it's almost like the same spirit is inspiring Moses and inspiring John. What does the next verse say? You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Oh, I skipped a verse. We'll get back to that. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand against the life of your neighbor. I am Yahweh. Man, that hits home. A slander. What does a slanderer do? Talk bad about people. Speak poorly about people, maybe, maybe not in front of their face, but behind their back. Tear them down. An old kid's song video that I used to watch. Steve Green, Hide Them in Your Heart. And the song, encourage one another and build each other up. That's the call of love. Don't slander. Instead, encourage one another. Build each other up. That's the Christian command to love. Let's go back to this other one I skipped over. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Harboring hatred against a brother is, I mean, that's the basic English vernacular. That's the opposite of love. Interesting what Moses says next. You may surely reprove your neighbor. Now that's interesting. A lot of people say, oh, if I love this person, I'm going to let them go do their thing. What Moses says is sometimes love means you've got to reprove someone. What does reprove mean? It means to... Gently but firmly come alongside someone and say, hey, you're walking down the wrong path right now, buddy. Let's get back on the right path. That's what it means to love. Ooh, this is one we've been talking about a lot if you've been with us in Romans. You shall not take vengeance and you shall not keep your anger against the sons of your people. And there's our verse. That's right in the center, by the way. We talk about chiasms. That's right in the center. Verse 18 is right dead in the center. Of all these verses. And what does it say? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. No vengeance, no revenge. If you've been with us in Romans, you know what that means. You shall not breed together two kinds of your cattle, sow your fields with two kinds of seed, nor wear a garment upon you, two kinds of material mixed together. An external symbol of the internal holiness, right? That not to be mixed with pure and impure. And as we move through here, we start seeing the chiasm move back, right? It's bookended. How do we love God at the beginning? How do we love God at the end? With right worship and atonement and offerings. Not eating anything with the blood or interpreting omens, soothsaying. And then as we continue, man, I, I should have put my verse numbers in here. Here's a good one. I want to love others. Rise up before the gray haired and honor the aged. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> and you shall fear the Lord your God. You want to love the folks around you who are older than you, honor them and dignify them for their experience and their walk with 
the Lord. Don't mistreat sojourners or foreigners. Treat them as the natives among you. And then we get to our second repetition. Love him as yourself. Do no wrong in judgment. Just balances, just weights. And then he sums it up in verse 37 at the very end. To love God and to love others is to keep all my statutes and all my judgments and do them. So what John is doing then, in 1 John, is he's calling us back to John 13 and John 15 and calling us back to Leviticus 19, these fundamental commands to love one another. Really just two things, two takeaways, big ones here, more than all the little ones that we took away from Leviticus 19. One, look to Christ as the example, embodiment, and empowering force of Christian love. Christ has to be the place that we start. If we want to love others well, we have to start with Christ. We have to fix our eyes on him because he is the one who loved perfectly. And then he is the one who bought our redemption so that we could love perfectly. I'm full of songs tonight. What's another one that we sing? Right, that, that it was finished upon that cross. Death is dead and Christ is risen. And what then are we free to do? Free to live and free to love. Death is dead and Christ is finished. Death is dead, Christ is risen and is finished upon that cross. But that's what Jesus died to do for us. Free us. To live, free us, to love. Look to Christ, number one. Number two, walk in the light by loving your brothers and your sisters. The concept of love is central for John's ethical instruction in this letter. And all that instruction begins here. A Christ-centered, Christ-motivated, Christ-empowered love for the brethren. Father, by Christ's power, help us love one another. We trust your spirit to help us to this end. May we walk in the light by walking in love and may that love banish the darkness. We pray these things in the name of Christ, the living embodiment of love. Amen.